Welcome to the premiere episode of the Let's Schmooze podcast. I'm Doug Ebach, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Each month, I'll bring on guests for a discussion on topics related to writing for various entertainment media. Today, my guests are TV writers Matthew Fetterman, um, whose show Blood and Treasure airs on CBS, and Joe Blodevogel, who is currently working on an Apple Plus show with Mark Bull. Did I get that right? Yes. Right. So, um, and, uh, and was recently on the CBS show Tommy. So welcome, guys. And um, let me start by, it feels like it's hard to talk about the entertainment business right now without talking about the novel coronavirus pandemic, um, because it has kind of affected everything. Um, you know, probably <laughs> most people watching already know that most production is shut down right now um, for television and for film. Um, looks like things are moving towards reopening with some very different processes for production. Um, but I'm wondering uh, how you think the pandemic is going to affect television writing um, on both a business and a creative level as we move forward after, after things start reopening. So, uh, Matt, why don't you start your thoughts? Um, well, I can, I can tell you where we're at um, uh, very specifically right now because we were um, shooting in Thailand uh, for the show for season two, which should have started airing by now, but everything got pushed. Um, <clears throat> and we got shut down, everyone got brought back here, um, and then we've been kind of waiting and, and figuring it out. So the, the, uh, the issue that the industry is right now dealing with is that the unions have to all agree on what the procedure is going to be for opening up, because uh, if, you, you know, if you know about how production works, there is hundreds of people on a set, there is food that's out for everyone to take a craft service, there's, there's a lot of interaction, and it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare for a pandemic. Um, so it would change the very nature of how you would do uh, everything. In our case, we have a, a, a specific tweak on that, which is that we are, um, the, the guilds that are in LA have something to say, the guilds that are in Canada have something to say, because our show is based in Montreal. Um, the country of Italy has something to say, because we're going to be shooting there next. Um, and so we need a lot of planets to kind of come into alignment so everyone agrees how it should be done, uh, in the way that's safest for everyone uh, and then gets us moving forward. Um, and, you know, for us, what, what it's going to probably look like is a much trimmed down version of a normal production. Um, it'll almost be like a, an indie film um, with you, you absolutely do not have one person there that, that is not necessary to be there. Um, the, the group will probably, you know, will take over a small hotel somewhere in Rome and everyone will stay in that hotel and they will stay in their own kind of production bubble. They'll move through with transpo vans where they, where they go to at the other end of a, you know, to, to shoot for a day, they'll go back to the hotel. They won't interact with anybody. So it, it's looking like it'll be some version of that, of a, the kind of moving production bubble that, that interacts with the outside world as little as possible. Um, that also means changing certain scenes that were inherently a crowd scene or, um, just anything that you would have a lot of people in and reconceiving from the ground up. What does this scene absolutely need to be dramatically for us that doesn't create all these production problems on top of it? Um, so long story short is I don't think anyone really knows what it's going to be because in a sense, you know, the, the virus is going to tell us, the virus is going to have something to say. Um, and there's a version of events where we all open back up again and we all think we're being very smart. And then a new wave hits us and, you know, your lead actors are, are sick and they're, they're taken down the production, just everything reshuts down again. And we all go back into our holes and we, we wait it out and figure it out. Um, but until then, 
I think the, the orders for moving forward are figure out how to do it as safely as possible, get everyone on board with what that means, and then you know, do it with the smallest footprint possible. Okay, cool. Jill, any thoughts on the pandemic? Yeah, you know, I've been talking to a lot of friends who are in various stages of production right now and reading a lot of articles. And it feels like, you know, the, the, the new um, methods that are going to have to come into place are going to add, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the budget to everything. And so this is something that everybody's really trying to wrap their heads around. Like when you talk about, when Matt was talking about the people you have on set at any given time, they're talking about making very isolated shifts for, you know, the director and his and the cast do their, their read through and then everybody leaves and like checks out. And then, you know, the, the guys, you know, the, the, they set up the lights and that's the time when they're there and they're isolated and then they take off. So it's no longer that, that very amorphous people coming and going, like you're saying craft services, there's not going to be, I don't believe there'll be any more buffets in the world ever. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like, everything's going to be pre-wrapped, you know, meals and things. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's stuff we can all wrap our heads around, but just like when I was told that school was going to be closed for two weeks on March 13th, and I was just like, oh my gosh, two weeks, how the heck is that going to work? <laughs> and then it's of course been closed ever since. And so it's, we'll hear the thing of what has to change and we'll say, how on earth is that going to work? And then we'll do it and it'll work. Or as you were saying, Matt, it won't work. And we'll have to stop and, you know, recon, you know, reconceive and adjust and move forward. So I do think it's going to be a stop start situation. Um, and I think we're going to try and be as careful as we can. And then something that we didn't even think of will, will kind of smack us in the face. and We'll have to, um, we'll have to adjust, but I've been given the same sort of notes, not just in terms of the physical production of how a writer's room is going to work which is now becoming a writer's Zoom instead of a writer's room is what people are calling it. And it's becoming a much more sort of focused situation. Um, a good friend of mine who's running a show that's, that's doing a Zoom room right now was saying that it is the same thing, but it's much more difficult to gauge that dynamic of bouncing ideas off of other writers because you have you know, there's just a difference between seeing someone on a screen and sitting in a room with someone. And so that's, that's gonna take a period of adjustment. It's much more exhausting, she said, to, to be doing a Zoom room, because um, you're just so much more focused. It takes a lot more energy to take in six different faces at once on a screen while being creative, while solving problems. Um, and then in terms of physical production, my episode of this show, it's very much a, uh, special forces guys go down to Colombia to rescue someone who's been kidnapped. And so my episode was a young woman in a Venezuela, an overcrowded Venezuelan prison. So I'm writing this scene of like this woman surrounded by, you know, 1400 uh, prisoners in a very small space. And as I'm writing it, I'm going, I think she's going to be in solitary confinement. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how the whole episode's going to go now. But when you look at photos of a Venezuelan prison, you know, you've got people just packed into a place. And, you know, a, another friend of mine was opening her, her episode with um, uh, a, a speech being given in a big, you know, uh, 
university uh, classroom. And as soon as that, you know, uh, outline got sent in, they're like, you know what? It's probably not going to be a speech in a university classroom. <laughs> so it's, it's really just like you were saying, rethinking every crowd scene, rethinking every scene with more than four people in it, really. Um, because until there is a vaccine, until there is a period at the end of any sentence related to the pandemic, um, everything's got to be reconceived for a while. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm, so there's a couple of things I want to jump off there, but first maybe like creatively, um, how much are you wrestling with, um, you know, trying to predict the future in a way of what this is doing culturally? Because I just know from personal experience, I'm in a develop on, development on something now that's um, Saturday uh, high school dance. And there was a joke about hand sanitizer from before the pandemic. And now we're like, oh, that joke plays very different now. And oh, are there <laughs> going to be high school dances? Like how do we, you know, um, so is that factoring into, I'll let Joe answer first. Uh, uh, is that factoring into anything for you right now creatively? Yes, for me, it means I will only write period shows that were set before <laughs> 2020 because I just don't want to deal with it. No, it's absolutely a real thing. And I mean, I guess I kind of relate it to writing things right after 9-11. You know, it's something that happens that so permeates your world. You're like, is there any way to just have a girl meets boy story that doesn't touch on, you know, this, this shared global experience? And I think it's a big question mark right now. It's that thing of, is it too soon, is what we often say. But there's no, there's no getting away from it. Um, you know, it, it would be nice to just be able to continue to write shows in that bubble of the world that we lived in. But the very fact that we have to, um, you know, take these safeguards while we're filming and stuff sort of makes it impossible to avoid. Um, so I think just like post 9-11, where it felt like, oh my gosh, I'll never forget this. This is so strong. This is so real. I think it'll be a factor for a while. And then the new normal will set in and it will just be, you know, to see someone wearing a mask on screen going into a store for the first couple times you see it, it's going to be weird. And then if that's what our world becomes, it'll just become the new normal. I mean, it's going to take some time. Um, but yeah, like you said, a school dance is never going to just be a school dance. Like as I'm watching TV with my family here, you see a show where someone meets someone and hugs them and you're just like, Oh my God, stop. Don't do that. What are you doing? And you know, it's already, uh, you know, what is normal is already changing. So I think it's going to take a little time, but it's going to, it's going to happen. You know, if, if we're all like a year from now, if we all get a vaccine, and the coronavirus is no longer an issue. Um, you know, maybe then another year beyond that, we'll be back to a, a new normal. But I think once we learn certain hygiene issues and once we set up certain safeguards, it's probably going to be a better safe than sorry sort of scenario, certainly for, um, you know, the people insuring TV shows and such. Um, so yeah, I think there's going to be a new normal and that it's going to take a year and then another year to see what that becomes. Yeah, I remembering uh, after 9-11, everybody going back and rewriting those scenes where someone, uh, you know, runs to the gate of the airport to meet a lover right. or a stop <laughs> from getting on a plane. Like, oh, that suddenly feels 
incredibly dated, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so, Matt, did you have any thoughts on the on creative differences from this? Yeah, I mean, we we're uh, where we are in our show. We're we're kind of pegged to a certain um, moment in time because we're coming off of a first season, and and narratively, it's okay. It's this much time later, and so it's all before the pandemic would have happened, but also we're a little bit in our own timeline because we blew up a pyramid in the first season and that didn't happen in the real world. So, you know, it's like, there's a little bit of like every show I think is kind of in its own universe. Um, we do have a number of things that we wrote this season that are, um, I'm going to have to constantly be saying all season long, this was all written before any of these events, both in terms of stuff with the pandemic, in terms of other uh, things that are going on. It's just, there's a certain point where you kind of have to, you know, you write the thing you write and then events take it over. And then you just have to say, this is, this is not our comment on these events. These are a separate, you know, we're in a separate universe. Um, uh, the, the different writers I've, I've talked to or heard from who are, uh, I feel like every, it's going to be a grab bag of how everyone deals with it fictionally. Some people I've heard, they'll, they'll kind of acknowledge that a pan, they're, they're taking place in their minds kind of post pandemic. So there'll be people in the background with, with face masks, but the main actors won't have it. Um, and they're just kind of in a world where it's like, people are being careful, but we're largely, this is life now and we're moving on. Um, a lot of other people have said, we're just not gonna deal with it. We're just gonna be in our own universe where it just didn't happen. Um, I really don't think we're actually, we know what the right answer is. I think the audience will kind of tell us, you know, they'll, things will come out. In the way that Handmaid's Tale came out at the exact right moment for Handmaid's Tale, but at the time they were making it, they could not have known that. Um, it was, it was just, I won't say it's a lucky thing. It was lucky for the show, it was unlucky for the rest of us that it suddenly felt so meaningful at that moment when it came out. Um, you know, I think that we're all going to be kind of taking our shots at, at how to do this and certain things are just gonna, ha we'll, we will realize, oh, that was, that was the way to do it for this moment. And everything else will, you know, that's, that's not hitting that target, will just either miss that target or, or it'll be its own thing and people will, okay, this is the show I watch to get my head out of that. Um, and I'm, I'm also wondering if there's going to be a lot more shows that are like of a science fiction bent. So like on the development side, they just say, we're in the future. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's how we're going to get around this is we're in space. We're on another planet where, you know, let, let's, just, let's just do a show that just skips this whole period of time because we don't know how to deal with it. Um, I'm curious if that's going to be one of the responses. Um, but uh, it's like, I, I'm weirdly fascinated. It's, it's a fascinating time to live through and horrifying. Um, <laughs> but assuming we all survive it, it's like, you know, it will be interesting to see, oh, this is what we thought at that moment. And it turned out, you know, these guesses were right and these guesses were wrong. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I feel like it's not going to be as much of an issue for half hour comedies. Yeah. Um, we've been watching Schitt's Creek, my husband and I, it's kind mm -hmm. of a, bit of a lighter uh, thing at the end of the day, instead of watching Rachel Maddow's neck muscle strain. I, I, <laughs> I always worry for her. I'm like, don't have an aneurysm, Rachel. Um, but, you know, watching Schitt's Creek, I'm like, there's no pandemic in, in the world of Schitt's Creek. There's no pandemic in the world of Bob Hart, you know, Hart's Abishola. It's It feels like those are, those are shows that just exist in the bubble of the half hour comedy where I believe that it would never touch on them. And, and in that sense, I think they function in that way that they often are supposed to, which is an escape from the stresses of everyday life. 
the hour-long dramas, I feel like they're more likely to address it, if anything. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, I kind of I'm I'm about to start on a half-hour uh, sort of horror comedy, which is the first time I've done half-hour, and uh, I feel like I never even thought about how the pandemic would affect the storyline. So. I, I think there are definitely worlds that will just exist and no one will even stop to, to ask. Okay. Um, great. Yeah. So, and Jill, you had mentioned also writer's rooms. Uh, so I want to jump to that topic because I think, I think for someone who has not worked on a show or been in a writer's room, it is perhaps the most mysterious part of the whole process because it's like something, even if you go to film school or whatever, like you don't have a writer's room. So um I wondered if maybe you could just kind of describe how a story is developed in a writer's room and maybe a thought to how that's changing with the writer's room instead of a writer's room, but, um, but really just in general, like, like how does that work um, uh, for the writer's room? Sure. Sure. Um, I've been in a lot of them and it's, uh, it's, it's basically, you know, physically it's just a little conference room somewhere, hopefully with a window or two. <laughs> and um, you gather together writers of, every different echelon. I would always describe it to my parents in the Midwest who had no clue what I did. I said, it's basically like high school. You have freshman writers, sophomore writers, junior writers, and senior writers. And you know, the freshmen are newbies and they're learning. The sophomores know a little bit more and uh, contribute a little bit more, the juniors, seniors, and so forth. And um, yeah, so for example, the show that I was just on, Tommy, was a show where Edie Falco played the chief of police of uh, Los Angeles. And she happened to be gay and she happened to be single. She had a biracial adult daughter. And so there were um, a lot of great sort of drama dynamics built into that, but it also had a certain ripped from the headlines element of she is the chief of police of Los Angeles. So um, we, you know, at the beginning of the room, you sit down and you talk about uh, the characters, you talk about the world. We had a lot of great consultants who would bring real world expertise into our creative process. Um, Dave Bratton was one of our consultants. His, his dad was uh, a, a chief of police for a long time in several major cities. And uh, he worked in the PR department. Um, so he would bring us some really good sort of uh, behind the scenes stuff. We talked to several sort of female um, police chiefs and uh, upper echelon uh, folks from various departments. And then we would really dig into uh, stories that were important and issues that were important. Uh, I wrote an episode that was sort of a, a Me Too story. Um, and then I also wrote an episode that involved a, a young Saudi Arabian girl who was studying at UCLA, who was going to be basically taken back to Saudi Arabia by her parents because she was showing a little too much independence. So she ends up stealing a, a necklace from a high-end jewelry store. So she'll be arrested. And she talks Tommy into keeping her so she can try and seek asylum. So it was, you know, it's kind of taking stories, um, that are from the headlines and then doing our version of it. Um, the challenge with our show was it was about a chief of police, not a detective. So a lot of these things, you know, it was set up by Paul Atanasio, our, our show creator. And then we kind of pick up the, the ball and realize it's a lot more challenging to have a story where the chief of police gets involved. But um, yeah, the process mm -hmm. in the room was we all gather together 
we come up with some ideas that we like for episodes. Um, we take some time looking at the entire arc of the season um, because you've got several different layers that you're working on in your show. You've got, you've got the, the big story arc of our character moving from New York to LA. She is brought in sort of under duress by a mayor who was forced to fire his previous chief because uh, various sex scandals and, and uh, just a lot of corruption happening. And so you, you, know, you look at your, your story arc for your character, you look at your cast and, and see who else is gonna have their various sort of mini arcs within the season. And then, um, and then you, you, know, you get down to the nuts and bolts of, of breaking an episode. I don't know how much detail your audience wants to hear about how an, uh, an episode is broken. What, it, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe like how, yeah, how how does the how you have it? So that this is a um, not a serialized show, right? It's a it's a it's correct. A, it's it's uh it's it's uh I mean there, it's it's sort of half and half. You know, there is some ongoing storylines, but every episode um, has its own sort of strong a story. So. Right. Maybe just talk about how the, 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 briefly the process of like, you know, an idea gets assigned, how that story gets broken. And then like when the writer goes off to write and then, you know, um, sure. yeah. Sure. Um, well, the showrunner is in charge of figuring out um, who, which writer he wants to write, which episode. And there are different uh, strategies behind how you assign that. Sometimes you put your baby writers um, first, and these are your newest writers, and you have them write, so say the showrunner writes the pilot and then writes the second episode maybe. Um, sometimes you would just do it in order of hierarchy. Then you would have the, the, the next highest level write episode three, and then the next highest four and so on. But sometimes you would have, say a baby writer write episode three because in that sense, you've got your entire room assembled for the break. So you have all the big heads involved. And um, if you have the baby writer write episode three, then you've got, uh, it's still early on, you've got uh, a little more time, you're not so much under the gun uh, in terms of time for the showrunner to be more involved in, in aiding the process. Um, and, and then you kind of play it that way where you have the newer writers play because once a story is broken and a writer goes off to write it, that's one less person you have in the writer's room helping to break subsequent stories. And so you've really got to weigh what's more important to you, you know, having more people in the room to break the stories for the newer writers or having your strongest writers perhaps write the first few episodes because of course a show is judged um, on its first, usually three or four episodes out of the gate. And if it's going to build a following and if it's going to succeed, you want to put your best foot forward. So, you know, there are different ideas about who you have right what, but um, it's really, I think, what the showrunner feels, uh, what their confidence level is in the people that they've brought together. And, um, yeah, I mean, the process is basically, like I said, if you have an episode that's going to be a Me Too episode, then what you do is you sort of come up with some ideas 
Um, you know, we had an idea that started with maybe there's a, a powerful film producer has a big, you know, award season party at his house and there's a young woman found dead in the pool the next morning. And we were going to play the idea of this woman had been the victim of this guy, some sort of, you know, harassment she fought back. But then we thought, you know what, I feel like I've seen that before in movies and such. So we basically had the same scenario, big Oscar award season party, big film producer, and he's found dead the next morning, knocked over the head with, you know, a silver lion from the Berlin Film Festival or whatever. And so we just thought that was a more interesting way of doing it. And there's a girl who was on the wait staff at the party who is, who basically confesses. She said, yeah, I did it. She said he tried to put his hand on me and I fought back and I killed him. And so, it, you know, it was, it was a more interesting way to start a story, but it started out with a very sort of uh, an idea I feel like we've seen before. And then we found our way to twist it. And then of course, you've got to take that story and twist it two or three more times along the way. Um, and that's just the nuts and bolts of, of breaking the story. It's, um, it's a ton of these, which, you know, end up becoming these. And, uh, I basically, I feel like I've, I've, I've killed an entire Sherwood forest of, of trees, unfortunately, but this is how I like to do it. Um, there's a lot of different processes, but processes, processes. Um, but really it's, it's breaking a story down into acts. It's, it's figuring out, um, your progressions. It's, it's building your characters over the course of it getting uh, your audience invested in your, you know, your protagonist for the week, your, your sympathetic client or unsympathetic client, if your uh, character admits to murdering someone. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really cards on a board. And, uh, and then once you feel like the cards make sense, it's when you have the writer who's assigned write the outline or beat sheet. And um, you send that off to all the various powers that be that have to approve it and give notes on it. You get those notes back, give them to the writer. And once you feel confident in, in the map, the roadmap for the episode, you send them off to, to write it. And they usually get about um, 10 days to write a rough draft. And, uh, and then the process goes back and forth from there. Notes ten, from the 10 days sounds amazing. <laughs> 10 days, yeah. Well, it's not always 10 days. Yeah. But yeah there's the, there's the way it's supposed to work and then the way it actually works. You know? So, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Look, when you're at the beginning and everybody's got time, I always say that episode two gets written leisurely and rewritten mm -hmm. seven times before anyone sees it. And episode, you know, 10, you're, you're prepping off of a, an outline. So. Right. <laughs> It's yeah, it's, it's nice to have, um, it's nice to have some, some, uh, some room to move. Um, but when you come up against the schedule and you start production, it becomes Lucy and Apple at the conveyor belt. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. So, and uh, Matt, your show is, a, is serialized, although like you have a, a basically a season, uh, storyline like that has a beginning middle and end for the season right, right. Uh, which i feel like is actually becoming a much more common with a lot of the streaming services a much more common model of almost yeah. sort of like there is like mini series with sequels rather than series um yeah. uh so do you want to just kind of 
add on to, to what Joe said about like, and maybe incorporating kind of more of a serialized approach, breaking a whole season maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, our way of doing it is um, having a big picture. Whatever your show is, you have, you have different kind of boxes you need to check in, in the case of Blood and Treasure. What is our treasure? Who is our bad guy? What kind of what is the story that's, that's like overtly happening? What's the, the character story that's happening under that? Um, we have a, a, a male and female lead who are, who by the end of the first season are, are together. And so in the second season, it's like, okay, well, what's the next phase of this relationship and how does that, um, play off of the case in a certain way? So you're not just, um, you're not just going and investigating and that's all the scene is about. It should always be, there should always be some kind of relationship dynamic or something happening that's informing the scene. So it's kind of starting out with the biggest picture possible of what is the season about uh, like for their relationship and what is it about as a treasure hunt and why is it not the first season? Um, and so, and then you find, well, there's a lot of things we did the first season because that's the way you would tell this story. And how do we not, how do we make different decisions in the second season that don't, you know, a lot of times you watch a second season of a show and you're like, oh, I really love the first season. The second season, there's something off about it. And I think lots of times what is off is that they decided, well, we can't do X, Y, and Z because we did that the first season, but they didn't realize like Y is actually a necessary component of your show being enjoyable. And by zigging or zagging to get away from doing something that the audience would expect, you actually got away from why the audience is watching the show. Um, and so I think it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting part about having a second season is you have a room of writers that has all either worked on the first season or saw it. And they can all kind of diagnose the show in a different way than you did the first season. Because the first season, you're a little bit blind trying to figure out, you know, the audience has not seen it. So you're making your best guess based on your gut and what you want to say or what you want to see of what is interesting. The second season, you have actually more kind of data on what is interesting because you tried a bunch of stuff and you now know this whole storyline did not work at all the first season. So let's just move on from that and just forget that that ever happened. This thing worked really well and surprised us. So let's, let's play more in that area. Um, and so as a room, you're kind of, you're diagnosing all of that. I, I think of the room as the first audience of the show. Um, and so if somebody has a big issue in the, in the room with a story beat, even if they're a staff writer, uh, I take it very seriously because, you know, if we're a room of 10 people and one out of 10 people is calling BS on something, I want to at least figure out why they're calling BS on it and how do we resolve that issue. So, you know, and, and sometimes their issue is just not an issue that anyone else has. And it's just like, it's just so specific to them that it's like, okay, we're going to kind of acknowledge that note, but we're going to move on. Um, but, you know, everyone in the room is kind of adding to the story, but also having whatever their issues are and you're all trying to fix them together. Cause if you have something that 10 people all think is great, then I think you have something that millions of people can think it's great. Um, you have something that the room itself can't come to kind of any agreement on, then the showrunner has to be able to maintain the vision themselves and be directing the room, but it's a little bit more difficult when the room itself is fighting with the vision the whole time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process of starting big to small till writers are going off and writing their scripts and then you're getting scripts back again. And in a show that's serialized where there's a piece of evidence that's dropping in episode two that then is brought up again in episode three that then somehow is twisted in episode four. If 
you suddenly realize, oh, that thing in two didn't work, and we actually had to cut it, that cut a whole string that, that runs the length of your season, maybe. And so now you have to figure out, like, okay, this thing is a problem, but we can't, we can't just cut it because it's, it's load-bearing to the season. So how do we solve the problem that's an episode two problem but not make it a season problem? Um, and so that's why, you know, you need the room – um, you need the room's like brains all kind of working together on things because you're all carrying the story together. And if, if somebody doesn't really understand the story you're telling and they go off and write their episode, lots of times they're going to come back and you're going to be like, this, this episode is not, um, you can tell that the, that the writer didn't understand the, 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 the problem. And so now this whole episode doesn't work. And if you have a script that comes in and it doesn't work, especially later in the season, um, like Jill was saying, where you're, you're loading and firing and loading and firing at that point. If you have a script that comes in and it doesn't work, you're in a lot of trouble. And that's when it starts to be, if you had good hours before then, there's a point in every season where the train just goes off the track. Because it may be, a, may be a script that came in bad. It may be an idea that was that didn't work and the, the whole room agreed on it and it's no one's fault. It just didn't work. It may be that the network or studio blows up an idea cause they didn't like it. Uh, but something will generally happen that the track will get blown up in front of you. The train will skid off of it and you will now be trying to steer a train back onto track again. Um, and it's going to take a lot of late nights from people to, um, you know, to make that, to make that happen. So, um, you know, but I think if you start with a vision for all your big picture stuff, when you do go off the track, I don't think you go as far off the track because you always know, well, this is where we're heading. So any answer that gets us back onto that track is the right answer. Um, you know, at this point, if someone has a problem with like the big, the big picture and they're saying in episode eight, you know, there's something about what the bad guy is saying here. And it's like, listen, that was a you're having an episode two note right now. You know what I mean? Like where we, we can like, if it's something we can change in dialogue, we can do that. But right now this is the story and it is baked and we are just now we're, we're delivering this pie. We're not, we're not remaking the pie, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, the job of the, of the staff writer is to be helpful wherever, wherever possible. Often that means just listening. Um, often the, the staff writer um, is, is in a way because they're not, less is expected of them. They can sometimes be important kind of keepers of the mythology of the show or whatever, like things that are, that are happening in the background. They're kind of taking a lot more of it in because they're listening to everything. Um, and you know, and then as you, you go up the ranks, you're there's generally more is expected of you and there are more responsibilities. And then the showrunner is making final say on let's go in this direction. This is what we're doing. Everyone, you know, it's like, uh, We've okay. We argued about this for two hours. This feels like the right answer. We're going to go with this for now. Let's move. And you know, you're making a decision to move forward. And then everyone just has to whatever whatever direction you wanted to go in for. Now the showrunner is saying this is the way we're going, and that's the way we're going. Um, so it's a it's a creative and um, collaborative endeavor. But there is a point where it's also there's like an, an a militaristic sense of hierarchy that will engage at a certain point um, because time is of the essence and it's like, okay, no, there's the, the time for arguing is done. The time for doing is now we're, we're now going to do. Um, and, uh, so you need to be able to both kind of be, you know, fluid with thinking of different ideas, but you also need to like at a certain point, just 
fall into into the line of this is what the showrunner is saying the story is going to be moving in a direction of so how do i make that the best the best story possible okay cool that's good um and and that kind of brings me to a question of uh any any tip for someone going into their first writer's room um and any advice maybe uh things you've seen people do badly or uh or that you did badly or wish you'd known going in like uh, uh me me or jill uh, Matt, why do you start it? Then we'll do two. Um, okay, I, I mean, we definitely made a lot of mistakes. I think that we were, uh, I say we because I have a writing partner. Um, and, you know, we were just very passionate. And, and I like passionate writers personally, so I will hire passionate writers as long as I, I feel like they can, um, they can get it under control. You know what I mean? Because um, I think passion is a virtue, virtue in a room and for storytelling. Um, but, we, you know, when you're younger, Oops, looks like Matt kind of froze there. Joe, oh, there you are. Sorry, go oh, ahead. can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so it's, you know, you, you want that passion to be able to be under some kind of control and you want to be aiming in the target that's set for you. Um, and if you have a big issue, it's so much about timing it. Um, if the room, like one of the things that I learned as a, as a staff writer was if I, I, if I could see a story was going in a bad direction, what I thought was a bad direction, but often what would be proved out as a bad direction, because the story would die. Um, I thought my job was to kind of jump in the way with my body and say, <laughs> do not do this. This is a bad idea. Here's the reasons why. And you know, what I learned was like, that's not really what anyone's looking for the staff writer to do. Um, and so what I would, what I learned over, you know, a couple experiences is like, you can raise a question. Oh, are we worried about X, Y, or Z? And if you're told no one's worried about that, then you can say, okay. And then, give your best to trying to get, make the story right. But also in the back of your mind, if you think we are running at a wall that's going to become apparent to everyone in about three hours, also be maybe working on an idea for what happens when we hit that wall. So, so what I learned was my job is not to throw my body in the way of, of what I think is ill-gotten progress. My, my job is to help progress and then if it turns out it was not working, then I am also ready with a backup pitch. So when we hit that wall and everyone's like, oh, but wait, if, if he's the bad guy, then that means that this whole first thing doesn't make any sense because he would have known that. And then I'm there with, you know, that's an interesting point. And so what if, you know what I mean? And like by this time you've had time to say, okay, this is really what the showrunner wanted. And they solved it in a way that was not really going to work plot wise, but like you can kind of cherry pick all the different ideas you've been hearing and you can reformat them into a different pitch. That doesn't sound like you're saying, forget everything you just said for three hours. I'm going to run in this completely. It actually sounds like what you're saying is, okay, so taking into account the last three hours, what if we change this, this, and this, but keep this, this, and this, and now we do this instead. And in that moment, if that works, you're a hero rather than the person who at the beginning was saying, don't do this, you know what I mean? Which is, you're remembered as don't do this guy, you're not remembered as a person who fixes problems. Right, great. Yeah, so. it's, it's the basic improv rule. It's yes and, instead of no, that doesn't work. Um, I had very similar experiences. Like my first job as a staff writer, I had come from several years of writing TV movies where I was the only writer working with executives. And so, it was a given that I would be talking a lot, explaining the story, answering questions immediately, which is 
a different creative process. So when I went into my first writer's room, I had that thing where if there was too much silence or it felt like I knew the answer to something, I would answer very quickly. And it didn't go over well. I mean, sometimes it did, but I came across as someone who maybe talked too much or jumped in too quickly. And so when I, was, when I became a showrunner, my first day on the job, as I sat down with my staff, I said, right here and now, here are the rules of how we talk here in the room. This is, you know, I wasn't on student council. I understand that some people in this room have more experience. I understand that some people in this room have less experience. What I know is we're all very smart. We're very good writers. We all come from very different backgrounds. So we bring really diverse points of view and things. And one of my favorite moments after my, my first bad staff writer experience was on my second show where we were sitting in the writer's room and we were trying to figure out how a bad guy had gotten this information about someone. And we sat there and sat there for like 10 minutes. And then I kind of said, well, if he was maybe a handyman and then he got a hold of someone's credit card and that was fine. Then that answered the question and we moved on. And my, my boss came into my office like at the end of the day and he said, how long did you sit there knowing how to solve that problem? And I said, 10 minutes. He said, don't ever waste my time again. And so when I became a showrunner, I said, yes, that there, there's a bit of a hierarchy. You know who the co-EP is. You know who the staff writer is. But we're here in this room and we're trying to solve a problem. And, you know, I want everyone to speak their mind it's like you will under, you know, you will pick it up fairly quickly. And if you don't, we'll come to you in a private moment and say, you know, you need to kind of do this a little more, step back a little bit. But the rules, the rules should become clear and everyone should know what the dynamics are, what the politics are. And hopefully it's less politics and more creative process. But the trick is, you know, we're all creative people. We all have our opinions about what the right way is to do something. So it's definitely something where the more you do it, the better you become at it. Um, but I, I absolutely agree, Matt, what you were saying is like, if you are in there saying this doesn't work, you also need to have the how about this or the, the new suggestion because you, once again, you can't be the person who's just saying, no, that doesn't work. No, that doesn't work for me. That's, that's not going to play out. And I think what can be intimidating for someone who's new to the business is the writer's room can move so fast that knowing that you can't just say, hey, that doesn't work, you've got to have a, a positive or a new suggestion. Sometimes you're just sitting there in your head trying to come up with that, mm. that better suggestion and somebody else steps in and takes over and pretty soon you feel like you're four steps behind and you haven't had anything to offer and then you start getting a little paranoid and then you start to freak out. It's, it's definitely a, it's a force. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wonder if Zoom rooms are ever going to work as well, because there is such a, a dynamic in a room when you're there with people that I feel like is the best way for the creative process to, to flourish. But um, it's, it's a very hard job. That's when you realize it's a job as well as a lot of fun is, is learning how to work with others how not to step on toes, how to accept that your idea didn't work. Like I was in a room one time with a guy who pitched something four times and was told four times by the showrunner, that's interesting. 
but it's not the way we're going to go. And finally, after the fourth time, he had to say there at the table, we're not doing that and we're moving on. And I was just like, wow, that is not the way to learn. <laughs> but that's the job of a showrunner is, is, is letting you know when what you're doing is right and when what you're doing isn't. And, and I think connected with all that is that every show is its own little um, fiefdom with its own little culture. And really, um, you know, because so much of what we're talking about here is the political parts of the job. But actually, I think, you know, your, your talent is going to get you to a certain place, you know, regardless. Your political skills, are, it's, that's the part that's not common sense that no one will really teach you ahead of time. Um, and so the quicker on the ball you are picking up those political skills is how you have a career, um, which is I, to me unfortunate because that's not the way I'm a very like logic driven person. I'm not a very um, kind of uh, politics driven person. Like to me, best, best idea wins, but I've had to learn, okay, there's other ways of doing it. And, you know, um, other people think differently than you and there's nothing wrong with that. So if you have a boss um, who thinks differently than you, you have a period of time to figure out how it is that they process pitches and story in general and take that time and figure that out. And if you need to talk to other writers, you know, in your offices, if you feel like you're not, you're not on, you know, you're not on their frequency, take some time with someone who is on their frequency and try to pick their brain because there's, there are different shows, um, you know, you'd think we are all telling stories and in the end, many of those stories may even seem very alike. And you would assume that they were arrived at in an exactly alike way. But to a writer in a room, they may have been arrived at in a completely opposite way. Like in the way that I like to work big to small, I've been in rooms where they start with, what's the teaser? And they work on the teaser. Okay, what would be the next scene from that moment? And they go chronologically through an episode and that makes my brain explode. Like, I, I don't understand story in that direction at all. But if my showrunner does, then it's incumbent upon me to start figuring out how to tell stories that way. Because if I try to pitch it with, here's my big picture for this episode, but they are like a linear thinker, they're, ju they're just going to be hearing static and they're going to, and if I keep that up, I'm going to condition them to not listen to me. Um, and so I think the thing that I've seen in a lot of rooms, both successfully or unsuccessfully, the successful people I've seen, uh, you know, at the beginning, you may not think that they get the show that well, but then a couple weeks in, they suddenly pitch something and you're like, oh, this person figured it out. Like they, they got their brain around to the showrunner or my, in that case, way of thinking. And I'm also then very impressed by them as people and as writers, because like they're doing a harder job right now, which is they're having to try to pitch story as me. You know what I mean? So they're, they're pitching story outside of their own brain pattern. And I, that's a very hard thing to do, but they did it. And I'm now very, very impressed with them. There's other people who, and this is like staff writer up through Poe Peak and Happen Anywhere, where you're, you're breaking episode nine of 13 or you're episode 17 of 22 or whatever. And they're still making the same mistakes that they were making on day two. And you're like, how, how have you not learned at this point that when you pitch that this, that this person wants to hear moments? And you keep pitching them story logic, but they're not a story logic person. They, they understand story as a series of emotional moments. And then it's the job of the room to figure out like the logical connective tissue that makes that a story. And it, you know, so if, and I've been, so I've been, I've had showrunners where I completely thought differently than them. It took me a while to figure out 
what they're doing. But then I had to basically go to school on the show that I was working on and start looking at, okay, here are the scripts. Here are the stories that got through. Why did they get through? What do they have in common to each other? And I started, and I suddenly learned my showrunner's thinking patterns by like studying the show that we were working on. Like I'm a student, you know? And then I got it. And then I went in the next day and I started pitching differently. And suddenly I, I was a whiff machine, like for weeks. Like I no no pitches would work. And suddenly I was just hitting dingers out of the ballpark every single swing because I suddenly understood their mindset. And now I could tailor my pitches to how they could hear them, how they understood story to work. And it suddenly was, a, it went from a, a really miserable experience to a very successful experience. Um, so I think that's, that's true for any level of writer. It's just, it's a skill that you get better at the longer time you have, but, uh, or you should get better at. Um, but it is something that I think uh, I wish they taught more in school was like, if you're going to have a boss and they're going to have a certain way of thinking, and if you can't fit into their way of thinking, you can have the best ideas in the world. It won't matter because they're not going to sound like the best ideas to them. So basically your first job is to figure out your showrunner. Um, and that is, that is a parallel track to figuring out how to tell stories in this world, but they both are necessary tracks. Cool. All right. So, um, we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up with one last question. It's a, it's a big question that could be a whole podcast in itself. So we'll try to keep it uh, to just like a piece of advice maybe, um, you know, which is about sort of breaking into television. Um, you know, if I ask how do you break into television, that would we'd go all night. But um, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of sort of conventional wisdoms about the way to do it. But we also have been talking about how the business is changing. Um, you know, the explosion of shows, the streaming services, the um, possibly the pandemic um, move more to serialized storytelling. So, is there any kind of conventional wisdom that you think is is maybe wrong right now for someone trying to break in or any tips you would have for someone trying to break in, you know, even if like maybe your best tip for how to prepare your sample material, your sample script, what you should be writing, something like that. Jill, we'll start with you. Uh, it's so funny because if you ask a hundred established writers how they broke in, you will get a hundred completely different answers. Um, in terms of present day, how you break in. My thoughts are, I think it's, it's excellent about 15, 20 years ago, uh, people stopped wanting to see samples of established shows and became much more open to reading original pilots or original screenplays or stage plays. Um, and I feel like the moment that gate was opened that I, I do feel like that was a bit of a great equalizer because I don't need to read someone's episode of fill in the blank, you know, Grey's Anatomy to know if they're a good writer. I want to read something that comes from their heart. And I feel like to me, the best, uh, the best pilot samples, the best writing samples I've read are original pilots that they clearly did not write because they felt like it would go over well with a studio exec or a network exec or another lawyer show or doctor show, or, you know, it's, it's something that, is, is strong and original and unique. And to me, if they can, if they can wrangle and illustrate and, and move me with a world that is completely unusual and, and unexpected, um, that will make them stand out from the pack. You know, when I was reading um, samples for Scream, which was the first show that I ran, 
it was, it was, you know, the scripts that, that knocked me for a loop, the, the scripts that you couldn't put down after 10 pages um, because of their originality, because of, of the voice that came through. Those are the things that I feel like make people stand out from the pack. Um, I don't want to, oh, I, I won't get into what I, what I don't want to read, but um, <laughs> in terms of, in terms of breaking in these days, I do feel like there is a lot more uh, people who are working support staff for writing staffs. Um, I, I think are there in terms of their learning and they are doing, you know, they're proving themselves essential as a writer's assistant in the room, taking notes. They're proving themselves essential as uh, a writer's assistant uh, who, who does other things. It's like everyone who, who fills those jobs wants to do the job that they are, they're helping out with. And so, you know, it's, it's a bit of a catch 22 and that if you're really good at what you do, um, it's hard to replace you, but you're also, you're in boot camp for becoming a TV writer. And so you, you are having great experience. You know, a lot of what's tough is that there are not as many um, freelance scripts available like there used to be. When you, when I was starting out, there would almost always be for like a 20, 20 episode, 22 episode order, you would have at least two or three freelance scripts that were available for, for assistance or for newbie writers who were submitting uh, samples and such. So it's really become, uh, I think, a much more competitive world for the positions of, of staff writer. Um, and I, I think those jobs are really just, a lot of it is, is who you know, is finding connections. A lot of it is, uh, I know there are a lot of contests out there where people can get exposure by doing well, placing in the top 10. Um, the various programs that the, the studios have run. My husband was in the Warner Brothers writing program and it was a really amazing program in terms of um, being seen and, and working with experienced people. Um, it's, it's much harder to break in than it was when I started out. I mean, when I started out, I had written a script and my boyfriend happened to be a very successful writer at an agency and he got an agent to read my script and then they gave it to a junior agent who sold it as a TV movie. And so it's not that, that the material isn't what it needs to be, but it really is getting that material seen. Um, so yeah, for me, it would be write material that, that really speaks in a different voice, an unusual voice that shows a different world, that shows a different point of view. I mean, occasionally I found that, it would be people writing their life story and they didn't have another one, which is, is something, you know, you have to be aware of. It's like, wow, what an incredibly fleshed out, incredible, you know, gorgeous story. And then you're like, yeah, that was my life. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's great. You can do it with other things. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's originality and freshness. Um, and the talent is there. The skill is there. I feel like if, if you read that and it grabs you, that it can, uh, that that talent can come into play for you as well. And Matt, any of your big tip? Uh, I don't, I mean, I came in as an assistant. So, um, and I think that that's, that in some ways it's like there's more TV being made now than there was back then. But um, 
especially in, the, in times of Zoom. Uh, I know they're cutting back on assistance in places. So I have a lot of concern for what that's going to do to the pipeline of people trying to get in uh, to the industry. I think it, it may be pennywise and pound foolish uh, on the part of Hollywood to, to cut the assistant, you know, the, the writer's PA position specifically is what I'm hearing. Because um, And also, uh, you need a writer's PA. It's just that they actually do a lot of stuff. Um, so, uh, I, but I think big picture wise, you know, you have two tracks that are running. There's your craft, there's your access. Um, the craft I think is, is what everyone kind of focuses on is like write and rewrite and rewrite and write and rewrite and rewrite and have people who you trust to give you feedback and just be getting your craft where it is. So when the access part kicks in, you actually have something you can hand somebody that's worth their time. Um, the access part I think is very hard. Um, but you know, it's certainly doable. I came to LA not knowing anybody. Um, so, you know, it's, it's doable. Um, people, I think sometimes take it's who, you know, as well, I don't know anyone therefore I can't get in. Not like now you meet people, you know what I mean? Like that's who, you know, is actually a, that is a thing for you to do is go know people. That's um, absolutely part of the work for sure. Yeah. That's, that's that you're, it's your job now is to, to meet people. Um, and I think that the place where those two tracks of access and craft combine is finding a writer's group, um, of people that are at your level that you, you personally vibe with, you know what I mean? Like you think are good people and all that kind of stuff. And if you can, if you can get your writer's group going, so you're kind of, you're, you always have someone you're accountable to, to be writing and all that. What you also have is if you have a group of five people, you have four more advocates for you out in the world. And if one of them does get a PA job um, and gets their foot in the door, now as they start to move up, they can say, oh, you know, by the way, if you're looking for another PA, I have a friend, you know? And, and I think that that's, that to me is the only, like, the, it's the thing everyone should be doing if you're not doing it, is you should have a, a writer's group of people because I think it, it keeps your head in being a, being a writer at all times, even when you're not being paid to do it. Um, and it, it de you develop your camp of people who are all looking out for each other and your boats will rise together. Um, and that's really, um, it's the, you know, it, it, to a degree, we're all trying to get a lottery ticket, but it's a lottery ticket that talent and, and effort and the right decisions can put you in a pool of a smaller lottery, at least. Um, it's, there's still a lot of luck involved. Um, so I think that, you know, making those connections with other people, just, it's kind of like you're all buying group lottery tickets together and you're just increasing your chances that if someone makes it, now there's someone who's made it, who knows who I am, who may have an invested interest in helping me to make it as well. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on my premiere Let's Schmooze podcast. Um, and to the listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, next month, I'm going to be talking to animation and comic book writer Eugene Sun, TV writer Spiro Skensos, and TV and comic book writer Benjamin Rapp.